Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag Welcome to the 373rd of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we continue with part 28 of South with Scott by Edward Evans, and then we have part 4 of The Boats of Glen Carrick by William Hope Hodgson. Right, let's head to that white continent. Chapter 18. Adventures of the Northern Party To set forth concisely the adventurous story of Campbell's Northern Party in a single chapter is no light task. Raymond Priestley has written it in book form already, just as Griffith Taylor has published his particular narrative of the Western journey in The Silver Lining. Both books are of absorbing interest to those who are fond of polar literature. I have, I hope, made clear the reason of Campbell's landing at Cape Adair. Mr. Borgrevink, in his Southern Cross Antarctic expedition, used this position as his winter quarters, and found just as Campbell did that it was not a suitable part of the Antarctic continent for making extensive sledge journeys from. Still, King Edward's land was denied him. Admonson was established before him in the Bay of Wales, and in spite of diligent search of Cape Adair, choice was the only one left to Victor Campbell and his five companions. Scott's instructions have already been reproduced in this volume. He mentioned Robertson Bay and Cape Adair is at the northeast extreme of the promontory bounding the bay to the eastward. Campbell was by no means satisfied with his landing place, but coal was short in the Terra Nova and the season was drawing in. He had vainly searched for more profitable wintering place and it was not until February the 17th that he got his chance of landing here even. The party and their stores were put ashore on the beach which the Southern Cross expedition had chosen, for want of a better spot where their stuff could be set safely on land. Loose ice and surf hampered operations, for owing to shallow water, boats had to convey hut, gear and equipment from the ship, instead of sledges taking it over fast ice, as was the case at Cape Evans. It was truly a case of bundling Campbell and co. out of the ship and only their great optimism and bonhomie kept this party from despair. As it turned out, they had some of the best of the expedition game, since neither disaster nor terrific disappointment dogged their steps as in Scott's case, for up until the very last they were in a blissful ignorance of our dreadful plight in the main party. The old huts left by Borkrific in 1900 were much dilapidated, one snowed up inside and the other roofless and full of penguin guano. The snow was removed from the snow-choked hut, and this shack used as a temporary shelter while the building of the Chateau Cambal. The work of landing stores from the Terra Nova was established in two days, and the ship, after tooting a farewell to the little party on her siren, steamed away and left them to their own devices. The Cape Adair locality is a famous penguin rookery, and Campbell's men might for all the world have been erecting their hut on Hampstead Heath during a bank holiday, for the penguins gathered in their thousands around them in a cawing, squawking crowd. Penguins are the true inhabitants of Antarctica, and have flourished for countless ages in these parts. Surgeon Levick, Campbell's doctor, had written a splendid little book entitled Antarctic Penguins, Hyman, 
which tells all about the little beggars in popular language. The members landed with Lieutenant Victor Campbell were Levick, surgeon and zoologist, Priestley, geologist, Abbott, seaman, Browning, seaman, Dickerson, seaman. The three seamen were chosen by Campbell after careful observation on the outward voyage. The northern party hut was completed and first inhabited by March the 5th. An ice house for the storage of fresh meat was constructed, or rather hollowed out of an iceberg grounded close to. Unfortunately, this had to be evacuated, owing to a surf causing the berg to disintegrate. And V. Campbell puts it, quote, We had only just time to rescue the forty penguins which we had stocked in it, and carry the little corpses to a near ice house built of empty cases filled with ice. End quote. To appreciate best the surrounding hereabouts, one may as well give a brief description of the Cape Adair and Robertson Bay environment. The place on which the hut was built is a small triangular beach, cut off from the mainland by inaccessible cliffs. A fine bay, containing an area of perhaps 900 square miles, lies to the westward, and south and behind this, the Admiralty range of mountains rises in a snowy splendour to the heights of 10,000 feet or more. Other ranges are visible far to the westward, whilst black basalt rocks overhang the station. Several well-faced glaciers are visible, but according to Campbell, none are possible to climb onto, and nor do they lead up to the inland plateau. On this account, the party were unable to accomplish any serious sledging whilst landed here. Other things were undertaken, and the members did excellent meteorological, geological and magnetic work, while Campbell himself made some good surveys. Priestley has added greatly to our geological knowledge, and he, with his previous Antarctic experience, made himself invaluable to his chief. The Aurora observations show much more variegated results than we got at Cape Evans, where, as pointed out, there was a great absence of colour beyond pale yellow in the displays. The principal drawback of the beach here was its covering of guano and manure dust from the myriads of penguins and their predecessors. I'd gone ashore at Cape Adair as a sub-lieutenant on January the 8th, 1903, to leave a record, and I remember that we had literally to trample on the penguins to get across the beach to Borkrevik's hut. Now, interesting it all was, my first landing on this inhospitable continent. My impressions left a wonderful memory of mouse-coloured woolly little young of the Adele penguin. I even remember taking one away and trying unsuccessfully to bring it up. It must have taken Campbell's crew a long time to get accustomed to the pungent odour thereabouts. Levick dressed the ground with bleaching powder to help dispel that dreadful odour of guano before Campbell's men put their hut to the floor. There is little to set down about concerning the Cape Adair winter. The routine much resembled our own winter routine at Cape Evans. It was much warmer, however, and being six degrees further north, the sun left the party nearly a month later and returned the same amount earlier. They had little more than two months of the sun below the horizon, in fact. There is a certain amount of quiet humour about Campbell's record. For instance, he states that they used their pram, or Norwegian skiff, and tried trawling for biological specimens on March 27th. Quote, Our total catch was one sea louse, one sea slug, and one spider. End quote. It is very interesting to note that in March, they had aurora in which, quote, an arc of yellow stretched from northwest to northeast, 
while a green and red curtain extended from the northwest horizon to the zenith. End quote. The pram was Campbell's gift to the expedition. He was always alive in the matter of small boats and their uses, and he was the first to use kayaks by making canvas boats to fit around sledges. These were light enough and might well have been used by us in the main party. Had Paul Mackintosh possessed one in Shackleton's last expedition, he and his companions would probably have saved themselves. If they had carried a canvas cover on a sledge with them, however, it's always easy to be wise after the event. Levick's medical duties were light indeed. They included the stopping of one of Campbell's teeth, and the latter says, quote, as he'd been flensing a seal a few days before, his fingers tasted strongly of blubber, end quote. Priestley took charge of the meteorology for this station, in addition to his own special subjects. Abbott was the carpenter, Browning the acetylene gas man, and Dickerson the cook and baker. With these ends in view, Mr. Archer had had Dickerson in the galley on board during the outward voyage. This hut of theirs was stayed down with wire hawser on account of the gales recorded by the Southern Cross expedition. The company's alarm clock, an invention of Browning's, deserves a description from Campbell's diary. We felt the want of an alarm clock, as in such a small party it seems undesirable that anyone should have to remain awake the whole night to take the 2 to 4 a.m. observations. But Browning has come to the rescue with a wonderful contrivance. It consists of a bamboo spring held back by a piece of cotton roved through a candle, which is marked off in hours. The other end of the cotton is attached to the rigour of the gramophone, and whoever takes the midnight observation winds the gramophone, sets the cotton, and lights the candle, and turns the trumpet towards Priestley, who has to turn out for the 2am. At ten minutes to two, the candle burns the thread, and releases the bamboo spring, which, being attached to the trigger, starts the gramophone in the sleeper's ear, and he turns out and stops the tune. This arrangement works beautifully, and can be timed to five minutes. Curiously enough, Campbell's men sustained far more frostbites than we at Cape Evans did. In all my four Antarctic voyages, I've never been frostbitten beyond a touch here and there on the fingertips, working instruments, yet I occasionally now get chillblains in an ordinary English winter. A short expedition was made by Campbell, Priestley and Abbott on July 29th to determine the travelling condition and find out what sort of surface would be met with for the coastwise sledging to come when the season opened. Speed worked out at a little over seven miles a day on the outward trip to the Duke of York Island. The salt-flecked smooth ice was heavier going than the much rougher stuff where pressure obtained. On August 8th, a small two-day geological expedition was undertaken, and prepared to start on a more extensive journey westward. The party were disappointed to find the ice had all blown out and left them water-girded. A blizzard of unusual violence followed the exit of the ice, and the storehouse roof was torn away. It must have been a severe blow to the energetic Campbell that he was denied serious sledging while quartered at Cape Adair. Minor expeditions were undertaken and some useful information gleaned, but unsafe ice and unsatisfactory conditions all around prevented any of the really long journeys Campbell would otherwise have made. The Terra Nova was sighted on January the 4th, and in two days Campbell, his party and his belongings were safely on board and proceeding along the coast eager to try their fortunes further south. 
Evans Coves, in latitude 75 degrees, was their next objective. The ship was placed alongside Piedmont here on January the 8th, near a big moraine close to the north of the coves. A depot of provisions was established, and an arrangement was come to between Pennell and Campbell that the latter should be picked up on February the 18th. Reference to the sketch charts will show the part of Victoria land in which Campbell was now working. It was proposed to sledge round Mount Melbourne to Wood Bay and examine the neighbourhood geologically and geographically. The sledge team found some remarkable ice structures and new and interesting glaciers. They had a crop of small adventures and found sandstone rock containing fossil wood and many other excellent fossils, garnets, etc., besides which Campbell did good work surveying. A new glacier was named after Priestley and another after Campbell. More fossils were discovered on February the 1st, and a quantity of lichens, shells, worm casts, and sponge spickles were discovered in the locality of Evans Coves, to which the party returned. On February 17th, they began to look for the Terra Nova, but as time went on and she did not put in an appearance, Campbell prepared to winter. Pennell, as we know, had met with ice conditions that were insuperable, and he never got the ship within 30 miles of the coast. Pennell, Rennick and Bruce did all that men could do to work the Terra Nova through, but communication was impossible that season, and the Northern Party was left to face the rigours of a polar winter, with nothing more than four weeks' sledging ration and £270 of biscuits extra. His companions could not have been better chosen to help Campbell through this ordeal. The leader knew his men absolutely, and they themselves were lucky in having a huge, resourceful and determined officer in charge. On March the 1st, Victor Campbell selected a hard snow slope for the winter home, and into this he and his men cut and burrowed until they had constructed an igloo or snow house 13 feet by 9. They insulated this with blocks of snow and seaweed. A trench roofed with seal skins and snow formed the entrance, and at the sides of this passage they had their storerooms and larder. All the time this house was under construction, a party was employed killing penguins and seals, for which they kept a constant lookout. By March 15th, their larder contained 120 penguins and 11 seals. After this date, gale succeeded gale, and the winter set in with a long run of bad weather. Campbell and his companions led a very primitive existence here for six and a half months. They only had their light summer sledging clothes to wear, and these soon became saturated with blubber. Their hair and beards grew, and they were soon recognisable only by their voices. Some idea of their discomforts will be gleaned by a description of their diet. Owing to their prospective journey to Cape Evans, Campbell had felt it to reduce the biscuit supply from eight to two biscuits a day, and then to one. Generally, their diet consisted of one mug of pemmican and seal hoosh, and a biscuit for breakfast, nothing for lunch, a mug and a half of seal, one biscuit and three quarters of a pint of thin cocoa for supper. On Sundays, weak tea was substituted for cocoa, and this they reboiled for Monday's supper, and the dried leaves were used for tobacco on Tuesdays. Their only luxuries were a piece of chocolate and twelve lumps of sugar weekly, and twenty-five raisins apiece were kept for birthdays. One lucky find was thirty-six fish in the stomach of a seal, which fried in blubber and proved most excellent. 
The biscuit ration had to be stopped entirely from July to September. The six men cooked their food in seawater as they had no salt, and seaweed was used as a vegetable. Priestley is reported to have disliked it, and no wonder, for it was probably rotted in the sun for years, and the penguins had trampled it all down apart from anything worse. Campbell kept a wonderful discipline in his party, and they were sometimes confined to the igloo for days. Swedish drill was introduced to keep them healthy. A glance at their weather record shows how necessary this was. We find one day snowing hard, next day blowing hard, and the third day blowing and snowing hard, nearly all through the winter. But there was never a complaint. On Sunday, divine service was performed, which consisted of Campbell reading a chapter of the Bible, followed by hymns. They had no hymn book, but Priestley remembered several, while Abbott, Browning and Dickerson had all been at some time or other in a choir. To add to their discomfort, owing to the state of their clothing and meagre food supply, they were very susceptible to frostbites, and Jack Frost made havoc with feet, fingers and faces. We should here give a little thought to the dark dreariness of their surroundings. This party was not so very far north of Cape Evans, and their winter was only about three weeks shorter if measured by the sun's absence below the horizon. The contrast between the palace at Cape Evans and the ice cave at Campbell's position is ridiculous, and to think that the little crew remained cheerful and in harmony under such troglodyte conditions, it makes one wonder more and more at the manner of the men. They had none of the comfort, entertainment and good feeling of their co-explorers at the base, and the very dimensions of their habitation explains for itself the cramped nature of their existence. And yet, no complaints, and nothing but unswerving loyalty to their boss. Weaker-minded men would have broken down mentally under the strain of living through that winter. The sunlight went at the beginning of May, gradually leaving them with those peculiar drawn-out half-lights which we all grew to know so well, the whimpering purple clouds, the sad-looking hills, and the desolate ice slopes and snowdrifts. The six men were imprisoned with sullen hills and unassailable mountains for jailers until they had undergone their sentence. The sea was their chief jailer, for the sea had set them there and it was for the sea to decide on the time of their release. Boots had long since given out, and they had to guard against ruining their finisco, or it would have been goodbye to any sledging round Cape Evans when the sea did freeze. Seal blubber was utilised for cooking, and whenever seals were killed, the chunks of this greasy stuff had to be carried to the igloo on the men's backs. This meant that their clothes soon smelt very badly, which circumstance added to the misery of their living conditions. On May 6th, Campbell's party sustained a severe disappointment, for they saw what appeared to be four men coming towards them. Immediately they jumped to the conclusion that the ship had been frozen in and that this was a search party. The four figures turned out to be emperor penguins, and although disappointing in one way, they served to replenish the larder and so had their use. And now, the fourth part of The Boats of the Glen Carrick. Chapter 4. The Two Faces. Of the remainder of that night, I have but a confused memory. At times we heard the door shaken behind the great chests, but no harm came to it, and odd whiles there was a soft thudding and rubbing upon the decks over our heads, and once, as I recollect, 
the thing made a final try at the teak covers across the windows. But the day came at last, and found me sleeping. Indeed, we had slept beyond the noon, but that the bosuns, mindful of our needs, waked us, and we removed the chests. Yet for perhaps the space of a minute, none durst to open the door until the bosun bid us to stand to one side. We faced about at him then, and saw that he held a great cutlass in his right hand. He called to us that there were four more of the weapons, and made a backward motion with his left hand towards an open locker. At that, as might be supposed, we made some haste to the place in which he pointed, and found amongst some other gear there were three more weapons such as he held, but the fourth was a straight cut and thrust, and this I had the good fortune to secure. Being now armed, we ran to join the boatswain, for by this we had the door open and was scanning the main cabin. I would remark here how a good weapon doth seem to put heart into a man, for I, who but a few short hours since had feared for my life, was now right full of lustiness and fight, which, mayhap, was no matter for regret. From the main cabin the boatswain led up onto the deck, and I remember some surprise at finding the lid of the scuttle even as I had left it the previous night. But then I recollected that the skylight was broken, and there was access to the big cabin that way. Yet I questioned within myself as to the manner of the thing it could be, which ignored the convenience of the scuttle, and ascended by way of the broken skylight. We made a search of the decks and the forecastle, but found nothing, and after that the boatswain stationed two of us on guard, whilst the rest went about such duties as were needful. In a little we came to breakfast, and after that we prepared to test the story upon the sample wrappers, and see, perchance, whether there was indeed a spring of fresh water amongst the trees. Now between the vessel and the trees lay a slope of the thick mud against which the vessel rested. To have scrambled up this bank had been next to impossible, by reason of its fat richness, for indeed it looked fit to crawl. But that Josh called out to the boatswain that he had come upon a ladder lashed across the forecastle head. This was brought, also several hatch covers, the latter placed first upon the mud and the ladder laid upon them, by which means we were enabled to pass up to the top of the bank without contact with the mud. Here we entered at once amongst the trees, for they grew right upon the edge but we had no trouble in making a way, for there were nowhere close together, but standing rather each one in a little open space by itself. We had gone a little way amongst the trees, when suddenly one who was with us cried out that he could see something away to our right, and we clutched every one his weapon the more determinedly, and went towards it. Yet it proved to be but a seaman's chest, and a space further off we discovered another and so after a little walking we found the camp, but there was small semblance of a camp about it, for the sail of which the tent had been formed was all torn and stained, and lay muddy upon the ground. Yet the spring was all we had wished, clear and sweet, and so we knew we might dream of deliverance. Now upon our discovery of the spring it might be thought that we should set up a shout to those on the vessel, but this was not so for there was something in the air of the place which cast a gloom upon our spirits, and we had no disinclination to return it unto the vessel. Upon coming to the brig, the boatswain called to four of the men to go down into the boats, and to pass up the breakers. Also he collected all the buckets belonging to the brig, and forthwith 
each of us was set to our work. Some, those with weapons, entered into the wood and gave down the water to those stationed upon the bank, and these in turn passed it to those in the vessel. To the man in the galley, the boatswain gave command to fill a boiler with some of the most select pieces of the pork and beef from the casks and get them cooked so soon as might be. And so we were kept at it, for it had been determined, now that we'd come upon the water, that we should stay not an hour longer in that monster-ridden craft, and we were all agog to get the boats re-victualled and put back to sea, from which we had too gladly escaped. So we worked all through that remainder of the morning, and right into the afternoon, for we were in a mortal fear of the coming dark. Towards four o'clock, the boatswain sent the man who had been set up to do our cooking up to us with slices of salt meat upon biscuits, and we ate as we worked, washing our throats with water from the spring. And so before evening, we had filled our breakers and near every vessel which was convenient for us to take in the boats. More. Some of us snatched the chance to wash our bodies, for we were sore with brine, having dipped in the sea to keep down thirst as much as might be. Now, though it had not taken us so great a while to make a finish of our water-carrying, if matters had been more convenient, yet because of the softness of the ground under our feet, and the care with which we had to pick our steps, and some little distance between us and the brig, it had grown later than we desired, before we'd made an end. Therefore, when the boatswain sent word that we should come aboard and bring our gear, we made all haste. And thus, as it chanced, I found that I had left my sword beside the spring, having placed it there to have two hands for the carrying of one of the breakers. At my remarking my loss, George, who stood near, cried out that he would run for it, and was gone in a moment being greatly curious to see the spring. Now at this moment the boatswain came up and called for George but I informed him that he'd run to the spring to bring back my sword. At this the boatswain stamped his foot and swore a great oath, declaring that he had kept the lad by him all day, having a wish to keep him from any danger which the wood might hold, and knowing the lad's desire to adventure there. At this, a matter which I should have known, I reproached myself for so gross a piece of stupidity, and hastened after the boatswain who had disappeared over the top of the bank. I saw his back as he passed into the wood and ran until I was up with him, for suddenly, as it were, I found that a sense of chilly dampness had come amongst the trees, though a while before the place had been full of warmth from the sun. This I put to the account of evening, which was drawing on apace, and also it must be borne in mind that there were but the two of us. We came to the spring, but George was not to be seen and I saw no sign of my sword. At this the boatswain raised his voice and cried out the lad's name. Once he called, and again. Then at the second shout we heard the boy's shrill halloo from some distance ahead amongst the trees. At that we ran towards the sound, plunging heavily across the ground, which were everywhere covered with a thick scum that cogged up the feet in walking. As we ran, we hallooed, and so came upon the boy, and I saw that he had my sword. The boatswain ran towards him and caught him by the arm, speaking with anger and commanding him to return with us immediately to the vessel. But the lad, for reply, pointed with my sword, and we saw that he pointed at what appeared to be a bird against the trunk of one of the trees. This, as I moved closer, I perceived to be a part of the tree, and no bird, 
but it had a very wondrous likeness to a bird, so much so that I went up to it to see if my eyes had deceived me. Yet it seemed no more than a freak of nature, though most wondrous in its fidelity. Being but an excrescence upon the trunk, and with a sudden thought that it would make me a curio, I reached up to see whether I could break it away from the tree, but it was above my reach, so I had to leave it. Yet one thing I discovered, for in stretching towards the protuberance, I placed a hand upon the tree, and its trunk was soft as pulp under my fingers, much after the fashion of a mushroom. As we turned to go, the boatswain inquired of George his reason for going beyond the spring, and George told him that he had seemed to hear someone calling to him amongst the trees, and there had been so much pain in the voice that he'd run towards it. But, being unable to discover the owner, immediately afterwards he had seen the curious bird-like excrescence upon the tree. Then we had called, and the rest we had knowledge of. We had come nigh to the spring on our return journey, when a sudden low whine seemed to run amongst the trees. I glanced towards the sky, and realised that evening was upon us. I was about to remark upon this to the boatswain when abruptly he came to a stand and bent forward to stare into the shadows to our right. At that, George and I turned ourselves to perceive what matter it was which had attracted the attention of the boatswain. Thus we made out a tree some twenty yards away, which had all its branches wrapped around its trunk, much as the lash of a whip is wound about its stock. Now this seemed to us a very strange sight, and we made all of us towards it to learn the reason of so extraordinary a happening. Yet when we had come close upon it, we had no means of arriving at knowledge of that which it pretended, but walked each of us around the tree and were more astonished after our circumnavigation of the great vegetable than before. Now suddenly in the distance I caught the far wailing that came before the night, and abruptly, as it seemed to me, the tree wailed at us. At that I was vastly astonished and frightened, yet though I retreated I could not withdraw my gaze from the tree, but scanned it the more intently. Suddenly I saw a brown human face peering at us from between the wrapped branches. At this I stood very still, being seized with that fear which renders one shortly incapable of movement. Then before I had possession of myself, I saw that it was a part of the trunk of the tree, for I could not tell where it ended and where the tree began. Then I caught the boatswain by the arm and pointed, for whether it was a part of the tree or not, it was the work of the devil. But the boatswain, upon seeing it, ran straight away so close to the tree that he might have touched it with his hand, and I found myself beside him. Now George, who was on the boatswain's other side, whispered that there was another face, not unlike to a woman's and indeed, as so soon as I perceived it, I saw that the tree had a second excrescence, most strangely after the face of a woman. Then the boatswain cried out with an oath at the strangeness of this thing, and I felt the arm which I held shake about somewhat, as it might be with a deep emotion. Then far away I heard again the sound of the wailing, and immediately from amongst the trees about us there came answering wails, and a great sighing and before I had time to be more than aware of these things, the tree wailed again at us, and at that the boatswain cried out suddenly that he knew, though of what it was that he knew, I had no time at that point to ask of knowledge. And immediately he began with his cutlass to strike at the tree before us, and to cry upon God to blast it. 
and lo, at this smiting a very fearsome thing happened, for the tree did bleed like any live creature. And thereafter a great yowling came about us, and it began to writhe. And suddenly I became aware that all about us, the trees, were a quiver. Then George cried out, and ran round upon my side of the boatswain, and I saw that one of the great cabbage-like things pursued him upon its stem, even like an evil serpent. And very dreadful it was, for it had become blood-red in colour. But I smote it with the sword, which I had taken from the lad, and it fell to the ground. Now from the brig I heard them hallooing, and the trees had become like live things, and there was a vast growling in the air and hideous trumpetings. Then I caught the boatswain again by the arm and shouted to him that we must run for our lives. And this we did, smiting with our swords as we ran, for there came things at us out of the growing dusk. Thus we made the brig, and the boats being ready I scrambled after the boatswain into his, and we put straight away into the creek, all of us, pulling with so much haste as our loads would allow. As we went, I looked back at the brig, and it seemed to me that a multitude of things hung over the bank above her, and there seemed a flicker of things moving hither and thither aboard of her. And then we were in the great creek up which we had come, and so in a little it was night. All that night we rode, keeping very strictly to the centre of the big creek, and all about us bellowed the vast growling, being more fearsome now than ever I had heard it, until it seemed to me that we had waked all the land of terror to a knowledge of our presence. But when the morning came, so good a speed had we made, what with our fear and the current being with us, that we were nigh upon the open sea, whereat each one of us raised a shout, feeling like freed prisoners and so, full of thankfulness to the Almighty, we rode outward to the sea. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Lost on Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrig. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Until next time.